Hey everyone, this is Stefan Miller and welcome to The Forever Student. Today, we have on the show Louis Blake. He's a London-based entrepreneur, a speaker, an angel investor in the plant-based and sustainability space. Starting out in football and then nightlife, a switch to a plant-based diet in 2015 caused Louis to refocus his attention on businesses that make a positive impact on the world. I've had the pleasure to sit down with Louis for, for hours on end in the last couple of weeks, and it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know him. And I thought, why not bring him on the show to give you guys at least a snapshot of what we spoke about? So without further ado, Louis Blake, welcome to The Forever Student. Thanks, mate. Good to uh, continue the conversations, albeit uh, recorded this time. Absolutely. The, um, we're going to touch on a range of subjects. We're going to touch on your journey as an entrepreneur. We're going to touch on um, you being a vegan and becoming a vegan and, and, and also, you know, the businesses that you've created around that. Um, but also just looking at like particular habits that you formed, talking about productivity, talking about stress management, which I think is increasingly important to do so. And, uh, and then finally, we'll touch a bit on community and community building and, and why that's important and, and what role that's played in your life. But for starters, I think we can talk about you know, why and how did you become an entrepreneur? Mm. Yeah, I, I don't think I necessarily, for a long time, probably five or six years into my business journey, knew what an entrepreneur was. Um, it was kind of leaving school at 16, um, not being particularly good at school because I didn't really like being told what to do, what time to be somewhere, do this, think this. And I was always questioning, you know, um, the narrative. Um, I also didn't see a lot of sense in spending 40, 50 hours a week, most of my waking life doing something that I didn't enjoy purely to make enough money to go and do it the following week, which is what I saw a lot of my elder kind of friends and peers go into after school. Um, at the time, my biggest passion was football, uh, although I wasn't good enough to play professionally. And so while I was still at school, I started coaching. I started teaching. There was a, a local professional club that had a youth program that I was able to volunteer in. And I did about 18 months voluntarily, uh, multiple hours a week, learning from the older coaches. And so that by the time I turned 16, I was able to go and get my first coaching badge and I was offered a job with them. Um, on the side of that, uh, I had some younger players that I would coach uh, privately and I started to monetize that and kind of set up a little business around around coaching at, at 16 and there was a freedom in being able to work when I wanted being responsible for my own money learning the basics of you know running a small business at that age and after that I just found it impossible to go and take a normal job right I think I, I had a, a trial day at like a sales company and it was just horrible I'm leaving like halfway through the day um and that kind of took me to uh, live in, in New York for a year. I was coaching over there and I went to Mexico and was coaching over there. And in that process, you know, I was obviously working for someone else at that time, but I saw the inner workings of a business, particularly because both of those businesses were fairly early stage. And, you know, 1920, I was looking at how could I do this myself? And so whilst in Mexico, I kind of wrote a bit of a business plan. I came back to the UK and I set up uh, my first business, which was a, a football academy. And I, I didn't see this as a business or a kind of an entrepreneurial venture. Certainly entrepreneurship didn't have the same, uh, same kudos that it does today and the same desirability. 
Um, but yeah, I, you know, 2021, 20, I set up this, 2021, 20, I set up this football coaching business and very quickly um, had to learn baptism of fire, what a PL is, what tax is. And it was a great way to learn, a really, really fantastic way to learn. And obviously I was having a lot of fun doing it, spending 20, 30 hours a week actually on, on the grass coaching. Um, and around that time, I was thinking, okay, so this model then, I, I'm doing what I love. I'm obviously giving value, creating value for other people in the process. What else do I love doing? And what else is missing where I live? What else could I do? And as a 21-year-old, you know, you enjoy going out, socializing, partying, whatever. But there was a, you know, I'd lived in New York. I'd lived in Mexico City. I had friends that were playing professionally. And I was going to London and, and uh, going out to party with them. And where I lived, there wasn't a great nightlife scene. So I kind of took all that inspiration that I'd seen in those kind of major cities, created a little event, found some DJs that I worked with and some people I grew up with and created this kind of party brand. And, you know, very, very quickly, we developed this, uh, this online presence. This is around the time that Facebook and, and other kind of online platforms were starting to become popular. And we set up kind of a, I guess what you'd call an upmarket student night. So and we kind of then ran this student night across multiple cities in the UK and created again almost accidentally this events business so you know I, I, I guess I don't I wasn't trying to start a business I was just trying to find ways to make money that were way things that I enjoyed trying to have fun and and you know not get caught in the uh, in the trap of exchanging my time for not a lot of money doing something that I didn't like so there's a few things I want to touch on because that's that's very very interesting I believe that Doing what you love obviously is extremely important, but finding something that uh, finding something that you love that can also make you money is not always easy. Especially given, you know, the current climate, people working their nine to fives, people being in their comfort zone, um, and their willingness to to take the leap uh, to jump out of that. So, if you were to speak to someone who said, "Listen, I don't really know what I love. Um, I have all these different interests." I'm currently working a nine to five and I'm very comfortable, but I'm thinking about making the jump. What would you tell people like that? Like what sort of advice would you give them? Test it, test the things you think you love, you know? And I think when we say, I think the, the trap that a lot of people get caught in with this is they compensate on what they think they love based on what they think they can monetize. Whereas, you know, if you'd have said to me at 16, Oh, you can't make any money coaching football. I mean, look, you know, if you work coaches of youth players at Premier League clubs make a very small wage, you know, comparative to the, to the qualification, the skill level, the experience level required to work at that level and the wages of the players and the, the, the you know, the first team, et cetera, they make an incredibly low wage. So you, you wouldn't necessarily say that they make a lot of money, but, and that was the narrative to me, I guess. Oh, you can't make money coaching football. If you're running a football coaching business and you're coaching privately and you're the best in that area, you can definitely make enough money from, from that, which would otherwise be viewed as a passion. So I guess in that instance, it would be to test various passions, look at what problems can be solved in that space. I think that given the internet now, there's, you know, even if what you like is incredibly niche, you can find a group of people that also like that thing. There's so many people in the world. You know, my big focus this year was is around ser for services and community for vegan entrepreneurs. 
It's like, how many vegan entrepreneurs do you know? Well, locally, I might know three or four, but globally, I'm sure there's thousands. So it's, I think there's, you know, various things that need to be considered, but ultimately it comes down to testing, you know, do you really love it or do you think you love it? Go and work 10 hours voluntarily and then you'll know if you love it or not. Like I probably did a thousand hours voluntarily before I started getting paid for coaching football. But, you know, how much do you want it, <laughs> right? You could do two hours a night away from work. You could do an hour in the morning, hour in the evening. You know, you can, you can, you can there's, there's time that can be found around a normal job. I think it comes down to, do you actually want it? And do you actually like it? And taking that leap will, will help you figure it out. Yeah, totally. And I, and I also believe that, you know, you don't have to take the leap immediately, especially for someone like me, for instance, I'm, I'm relatively risk averse. And before I jumped into owning my own business, I would work on whatever I'm currently doing on the side for probably a good year. You know, probably a good year was like nine to five and then six to 10 or six to 12 or whatever it is. And just one, understanding if I truly love it and if it's the right move. Two is, um, is it impactful? Because that, that was something that was important to me. Like, is what I'm going to do, is it going to make a difference? And then thirdly, of course, is there a way for me to make money out of this enough so that I can quit my current job? And you don't have to take the leap because, you know, you want to do it today. I think you can certainly take your time with it and um, and do it over over a period of time. In the future of work is actually project work. You know, I, I think we're going to start to move away from these fixed hour, fixed 40-hour contracts per week, one employer. I think project work is going to be something that really comes to fruition over the coming years where you might do, you know, you might have a number of small businesses that you run. You may have a, a consultancy here. You may have a project here. And I think you can, this is kind of evident from the transition from someone working one industry, one employer, 40 years of their life to people now changing career, changing employer. I think the next iteration of this is working on projects or working on businesses. You know, I've had businesses that I've worked, started, worked in for three years, sold or um, handed over or they failed, you know, and it, if you're, for me at least, I don't have the attention span to work on one thing for 50 hours a week anymore. I, I'm, I'm, I'm too interested in, in other things. So it's actually works. It suits my personality to have two or three projects running at once that I can dip in and out of, you know, and I think this comes down to the fundamental and requirement to really understand yourself before you decide what you want to do, right? Understand what, who you are and what you need. Some people will thrive in as a number two or as a number 10, as an employee of, because they like being part of something, of a bigger team. They like the financial security that goes with that. They want to be able to switch off at five when they go home and play with their kids or whatever. And I think that's a, you know, each to their own, none is better than the other. Some people will hate being in that environment. They'll hate being told what time to arrive at work. They don't want to switch off when they go home. You know, and, and so neither one is better. I think we've kind of entered this, this era where entrepreneurship is glamorized and, it, and it's cool and it's credible, but the brute reality of it is it's, it's definitely not for everyone because it, it can be horrible. It can be suffocating. You know, you, you literally do not switch off, especially if you're in a startup mode that's unstable. You're responsible for everything you think just being alive as a as a as a man and 
or as a woman, as an adult, is a lot of responsibility. Add into the mix running a, a, a startup business with employees and with obligations for tax and everything else, and you won't be able to switch off at five o'clock. So I think it's first and foremost is actually understanding who am I and what do I want and what do I need, and then find something that fits within those parameters, whether that be a job, a project, or a business. Yeah. And understanding what you're good at as well obviously makes a big difference too. I think finding out more about yourself and becoming self-aware is something we'll speak about more as well because it's one thing trying different things more from the business sense and it's other thing. It's another thing just really working on yourself as a human being um, and finding ways to uh, to do that and explore the inner world. One of the things on, on entrepreneurship that I wanted to ask you is you mentioned one of the, I suppose, the drawbacks right now. What are other things you would warn people before they just, you know, totally make that jump and become an entrepreneur? Like what are things maybe that also you currently feel and, and witness on a weekly, monthly basis or that you have witnessed before that people should be aware of? I think the weight of responsibility is something that I probably wasn't prepared for. I think, you know, there's this kind of like juxtaposition where as an entrepreneur, you're someone who's quite independent, but then you then have a bunch of dependents if, as you start hiring people, right? So I think, you know, especially with, I know I'm in, I'm in restaurants is one of my kind of industries and it takes a lot of people to make a restaurant run. And so, you know, there's, there's always a high labor cost. There's, there's, and these, these are people, right? Especially over the last two years where there's a lot of anxiety and concern around losing jobs and, you know, it needs to be the right thing by, by, by team members. When you're not making money, but you're also having to, wanting to continue to keep people in a job and, you know, understanding the, the empathy that they've got mortgages and kids and, you know, the needs for food on the table. It's a huge weight of responsibility as you start employing people. And ultimately the buck starts and stops with you. You can, it's, it's near on impossible to look at it as, a, as a, the business as an entity. It's an, it's an extension of you. And therefore, the responsibility is yours if you're the, the, the main shareholder or the main guy. Um, I think the other thing that people maybe aren't aware, ready for is if you put your heart and soul into a brand that you think of, you develop, you know, it's like having a child. Imagine having a child and then holding it up and people say, people every day calling your baby ugly. You know, the bigger <laughs> you get, the more you put it out there. It's like you have this, what you think is this beautiful baby that you've created and you've got all this love for. And, you know, you'd, a lot of us, you know, you'd, you'd die for your, for, your, for, your, for your business or your idea that you've created and you want it to, you know, to be this amazing thing. And, and then you put it out there for the world to critique. And very often, especially in the early stages, they, they will critique it, right? And the bigger you get, the more critique you get. And it's like, yeah, the analogy of holding your baby up and then, multiple people every day calling your baby ugly or calling your baby horrible. And you have to develop thick skin to get past that and, and look at how you can use that for the positives. If there are positives in there, what, what, what constructive elements of that feedback can you pull out to, to make the baby less ugly, shall we say? And how do you develop or how have you developed that thick skin? Has it just been through experience or are there any other ways outside of that to, to do it? I think like I used to get very um, protective um, it used to be very difficult to not take it personally because you attach yourself so closely to the brand. What I've learned to do is just is to, you know, as more people have become involved and as it's less of my 
a manifestation of my vision. It's more a manifestation of the group's vision. It's made it easier to lean on those people when that happens. Um, looking for the constructive in, in, in that feedback. But ultimately, I think, you know, on a personal development side of things, looking at how I've been able to strengthen my, you know, mindset and outlook around the business and just really believing in, in what it does. You know, if, 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 you know, if I truly believe in the impact this, these businesses make, and I know that we're going out there to serve a purpose that's needed in the world, I just look at someone can't see that or it's not been communicated effectively or they've not received, you know, that, that, that's just feedback that I can go and act on. Um, or it's been misconstrued or mis- and we need to address that. Right. But it's not the same as whereas before, if someone was calling the baby ugly, they were calling me ugly. You know, it's, it's not the same thing now, I guess, how I resolved it is to be less closely attached in my mind to, 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 to the brand. Yeah. And on top of that, I mean, I know you do a lot of, a lot of stuff outside of business that certainly pushes you outside of your comfort zone. And one of the things that I've realized, especially with things like, you know, running marathons or um, just very heavy training sessions or cold therapy or whatever that we can get into, is that when you make it or when you can make it through something like that, um, problems become much less of a problem. You know, like th- small things that might have bothered you through the day before you going on that journey just seem minuscule at that point. And I think that's one thing I really want listeners to understand as well is it, it's not just focusing on your business. It's just focusing on continuously pushing the boundaries, whether it's physically or mentally, um, because it's going to have an impact all around. And so that's one of the things I wanted to jump to next is talking a bit more about those type of things, like what, what type of habits um, have you created? Learning to get comfortable, being very uncomfortable and choosing discomfort so that when discomfort finds you, you're, you're, you're prepared and you have context for your own ability to deal with it. So, you know, you mentioned a few things there that we've spoken about previously that, that I've used and the cold water is, is a great one. You know, the first time I was seeing people getting cold water, I was I was scared, I was petrified. Uh, you know, you you're told to avoid things that that are uncomfortable, right? But when something very uncomfortable comes up, you you, you push it. You don't want to deal with it, but you have to be able to work and act under pressure because there will be pressure. You have to be able to think clearly when it's uncomfortable. So I found by seeking out opportunities to be uncomfortable and training my mindset in that state has helped that when I go into a, I end up in a position where it's not of my own choosing and I'm uncomfortable, I'm better able to deal with it. So let's use cold water as an example. If you can get in a, you know, I go in, we we go regularly into the, I'm, I'm from Norwich, which is by the sea. I go into the sea when I can, when I'm there, you know, it might be three or four degrees in, in the winter. And if you can stand in there for three or four minutes in the cold and you can cope with that, and that's first thing in the morning, whether you get to 10 o'clock and something happens, you've got context for your ability to cope with pressure, albeit it might be physical, but on the brain, it's the same thing. If you can you know, do that regularly, whether it be a dip tank or a, or a lake, wherever it might be, amazing. You know, you're constantly training the body, training the mind. Same with running long distances. You, you spoke about marathons, for example. 
there's points in those long distance runs where you want to quit. And if you can get to that point where you want to quit and not quit, this is training the mind, right? This, I think this is the Goggins thing of calluses on the, the brain, right? So um, yeah, I, I think finding opportunities to be uncomfortable uh, has been hugely beneficial. I think what's evident in our culture at the moment is that we are pushed towards comfort more than ever. Comfort and convenience is the priority. Get your food delivered to your house. Do not even cook it. You know, get get a taxi everywhere. You know, we're, we're being moved further and further away from the opportunity to be uncomfortable, which is great. You know, we're, we're safer than ever before. We're with more convenience than before. But on the flip side, if you're in a business or a position where you can't control everything and uncomfortable situations are going to arise, you're not going to have the mental capacity to deal with it. So, yeah, I think that those are some of the things. You can use sauna, you can use cold, you can use long distance running, you can use heavy training sessions, you can use sport. You know, there's there's a variety of techniques that you can use, but I would say the overarching theme is to seek discomfort and get very comfortable being uncomfortable of your own t- times of your own choosing so that when it is sprung upon you, you're, you're, you're ready to deal with it. What do you tell yourself when you get to that moment of, should I quit or I want to quit? Like, what do you, what's the internal dialogue that starts happening? <laughs> it varies. I mean, in the water, what I've learned is I have this little mantra where there is no hot, there is no cold. There's only sensation. And this really helps because you can actually feel the, the, the if you get you're in the water and you tell yourself, I'm cold, I'm cold, I'm cold. Oh my God, I'm cold, I'm cold. You're going to feel cold, right? The, uh, the, the, the brain doesn't know the difference. So that mantra has really helped with the cold water. On the long runs, um, I use a word called unmind as a mantra that I repeat to myself. So any thoughts that come up, I just, just unmind. It means I stop thinking them. I just try and get in a, in a flow state, super present. Um, I'm observing, I'm not thinking, I'm, you know, I try and get to this, this state. That's very different when I'm 85 kilometers into a 100 kilometer run <laughs> where you know the left leg's jacked, the hip's gone, the feet are numb, you're freezing cold, the head torch is gone. This is like survival. And at that point, it's like you just, you just have to speak words of encouragement to yourself, right? And the analogy of kind of be your own best, be your own best friend. Like what would you, if your best friend was going through that, what would you tell them? And just use that for yourself. Yeah. I love those. I, I got a trick from a friend of mine when I was running my first marathon and she was like, you know, the last, whatever, six kilometers are going to suck. Uh, you're going to hit a wall at, I think it's 27 kilometers or something like that, where typically you hit that wall. But anyway, she was like for the last six kilometers, every kilometer you run, Think of one person that you're grateful for and just keep them in your mind and just do that, you know, just do six people. Um, and then before you know it, it's it's going to finish. And it's just crazy that like when you play tricks on your mind, the body follows as well, right? Like all of a sudden you, I found myself finishing this marathon and the last six kilometers were a breeze just because mentally I was thinking about something totally different. So um yeah. So yes, yeah, totally. We can definitely trick ourselves in good ways and bad ways. And very often, most of the time, we're we're, we're fooling ourselves in, in in bad ways. If you think of fear and anxiety, a lot of the things that we fear never end up happening. But we spend so much energy and time fearing them 
you know, uh, it's, it's, it's exactly the same principle. Yeah, and it plays, it actually plays a role on your energy levels. Like if you, if you even track things like how many calories you burn when you're stressed and fearful and anxious, like your, your body's really consuming energy. Um, so finding ways to mitigate that is just so, so important. And, and one of the ways that I do it, and I know we, we've spoken about this in person probably for even a bit too long, but our morning routines, starting your morning in a way that adds value to you as a person, but also, um, you know, the famous saying, own your morning, own your day. What does your morning look like? And more importantly, why does it look that way? I think of a morning routine as like armor for the day. So you go out into the world and you've got this, this, this like armor around you. Um, I think, you know, if you, if you spell it out for people, it makes a lot of sense. Person A gets up at 5.30, meditates, stretches, does some breath work, takes a cold shower, has their juice, um, goes to work out, reads, gets ready, goes to work. Person B wakes up late, the alarm is rushing around, eats a sugary cereal, watches the news, rushes to, you know, rushes out the, out, out the door, you know, listening to, to music as they go. You can tell, you know, you can only see just from those two analogies, the, the difference probably the, 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 on the mindset of each individual. So I think for me, this is something I started doing probably six or seven years ago, and it's, it's probably been the biggest, um, the most important thing that I've changed about my lifestyle. Um, so for me, it's getting up between five and six. Um, to be able to do that, I have to go be in bed by 10 latest. I need seven to eight hours sleep. So getting up between five and six, um, I don't set an alarm. I tell my body what time I want to wake up, but invariably I always wake up around that time. Um, first thing for me is, is movement. So not stretching, but movement, just loosening up joints. Um, I'll take a shower, hot and cold. Um, I'll meditate 10 minutes, um, 10, 15 minutes. I'll either read or podcast depending on what I'm doing. If I'm walking to the gym, I'll podcast. If I've got some time at home, I'll read. And then I'll train in the mornings. Um, I've just recently, sw- I was doing some, I was lifting in the morning before, but now I'm just doing either boxing, jujitsu or, or cardio in the morning. And if I want to throw weights around, I'll do it in the evening just because I feel the body's more, more prepared. Um, and if I'm at the gym, I'll then sauna and, and cold. I'll sauna and cold after. Um, I won't, take a coffee thanks to you anymore for the first 90 minutes, which is a hack I learned from you. So thank you very much. But I do have a chaga. You would have seen me drinking a chaga and shilajit first thing in the morning, which is my kind of my go-to and, uh, and, and, and a lot of water first thing to rehydrate. Um, that routine can, can change. There's things like swap in and out, but ultimately there's, there's a routine with intention behind it to set me up for the day every day. It's never identical. Um, and I'm not religious. I would say that I probably do it six times a week. There may be the odd day where I don't, depending on what I've got on. Um, and I try and now do a bit of an evening routine as well, which has really helped my sleep. Um, I try and have a stretch before I go to bed. Um, I read rather than look at the phone at night. Um, I'll do like an evening kind of meditation, day recap. And, and that's definitely helped my sleep, along with magnesium supplementation which has been massive I, I was sleeping really badly um at the start of this year maybe two or three hours a night some nights and then introducing the magnesium 
again because I used to take it and I stopped has been a has been a game changer. Yeah, the evening routine for me as well is is something that um, that I definitely implemented after the morning routine. And one of the reasons was that I would go to sleep quite wired, and just my mind was still full of thoughts of the day. But then once you maybe journal or you meditate or you just take some time to read and you know dim the lights a little bit, then your mind settles in as well. And and magnesium, for me specifically, magnesium three and eight. Um, has been extremely helpful along with like taking ashwagandha and similar sort of supplements at night. For um, for those who don't know, things like chaga or different types of mushrooms, what has it done for you? Like what type of differences have you felt? So mushrooms for me, um, I take every day and I depend on what I need for that day. So lion's mane, uh, mushroom, very good for focus, concentration, brain power. You know, if I know I've got to sit down and I've really got to fresh out three or four hours of work on a laptop, I'll, I'll take a lion's mane. Um, I don't take all of them every day. I think I pick and choose what I need when based on what I'm doing. Uh, cordyceps, mushrooms, every athlete, every runner should take cordyceps. The, um, you know, it's been it's there's some really interesting studies out there which I won't um, ruin uh, by misquoting, but um, essentially um, helps the body deliver more oxygen to mus- muscles. I know it's a significant difference when I run if I've taken cordyceps before. It's an energy boost that is very different to caffeine. There's no come down afterwards. There's no jitters. It's just it's, and it's very bodily. Like you, you literally feel like you can keep running for longer, which is which is incredible. Um, chagra I take in the morning. Um, it's, uh, an immune, immune boosting mushroom, a little bit of an energy impact, great for the skin. Um, and I've just got really into kind of playing with different foods. I think this is obviously, this is something that's developed from the plant-based, um, route that I've taken and just exploring different foods, different uh, adaptogens, different supplements and testing using myself as a bit of a guinea pig and, and, and testing on my own body and see what works for me and what doesn't um using foods in a, in a way that's functional as opposed to mindless like before i would eat when i was hungry i was really focused on protein i wasn't really focused on anything else i wasn't really focused on I, for me a calorie was a calorie all calories were the same didn't matter where it came from and you know the kind of health scare that i had and then the redirection into plant-based made me completely changed about how I, how I think about food. Yeah. So let's talk about that more. Um, and, and then we'll go back to a few other things. Cause I also want to, want to touch on stress management. I want to touch on goal setting as well, because we've spoken about that quite extensively, but how and why did you become a vegan? About eight years ago now I was, I had a couple of uh, companies that I was running, um, day and night. I was still doing some stuff in nightlife as well. I wasn't sleeping a lot. Basically, all the things that I know aren't good for you. But when you're in your mid-20s, you can kind of get away with what you think you can. Um, so, you know, drinking a lot, not sleeping, eating. I didn't cook in the kitchen that I had in my apartment for like two years. I would literally eat out every day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, and not in good places either, you know, eating where using a lot of oil or... Um, a lot of processed food. And because I was training still, it, I didn't look bad. You know, I didn't, I, my inside were probably a lot worse than what I looked on the outside, but 
I, I got chronic fatigue. I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I was just, I was super tired all the time. I just kind of went down this slippery slope and was looking for a way to have more energy to be able to go back to work. And obviously reducing the alcohol intake was a big one. But the thing that kept coming up consistently across all the diets that I saw was a decrease in processed food, a decrease in sugar, and an increase in fruits and vegetables. I mean, it sounds pretty logical, but with upon that conclusion I came to was that I would opt for a plant-based diet. I would ditch um, meat, dairy, eggs, fish, anything from an animal. Um, I'd, I'd watched a couple of kind of documentaries and and feedback from various people online. And eight years ago, it was very different to what, I didn't know what a vegan was, if I'm honest. Now it's kind of accepted. It's, it's culturally sanctioned in a way that is amazing. And more and more people are, uh, are doing it or opting in some days. And there's lots of vegan food on offer, but back then there wasn't, it was this kind of niche, um, kind of strange thing. And I, I definitely wouldn't consider a vegan, you know, your the connotations of someone that was a vegan, certainly someone that I wouldn't, wouldn't aspire to. So um, I did it for a month. I went whole food plant-based, which is different from vegan because vegan is a food that doesn't come from an animal, whereas whole food plant-based is foods that come from whole foods. So if you're a vegan, you can eat potato chips and fried food and rubbish, basically. Whereas if you're whole food plant-based, you're eating you know, leafy green vegetables, uh, legumes, beans, grains, uh, all natural foods in their natural state. After a month, I felt incredible. My sleep improved, my energy improved, uh, my skin cleared up. I was had, uh, my brain fog went away. I was recovering from training faster. I just, just felt incredible. I was speaking to a friend who's a professional athlete and he was then doing the same thing coming into his thirties, looking for an edge and he'd done the same thing and his fitness test results had, had drastically improved from the previous season. And I started, you know, getting all of my, my thinking on this, on this topic verified by people that I trusted and that, and there was this small community of people that I found online that were doing the same thing. And over time, you know, I learned more about preparing food. I learned more about where food comes from, food in its natural state, as opposed to processed food just kind of went down this rabbit hole of how, how, uh, how, how plant-based diet could really heal the body. And, and you could definitely thrive on a plant-based diet um, to the point where I couldn't continue to work on my previous business because it was working with restaurants and, and uh, companies that were doing the opposite. It was selling meat and dairy. And at this point I'd gone down the whole sustainability rabbit hole and the ethical rabbit hole. And I just shifted my whole life to focus on. I found them. I think I found in this, I found a mission. I found a purpose. Okay. I want to help people get healthier. I want to help create a more sustainable world using plant-based foods as a tool. I just followed that passion. You know, I walked away from the two businesses that I had. Um, I literally, I left London. Um, I moved back to in with my parents at 27. I used the last money that I had to open a restaurant and went all in on, on, on doing that because I believed in it. And, you know, it served me pretty well. You know, I, I feel I'm 32 now, so I feel better at 32 than I did at 22. I'm still running. I can get up and run a, a, a decent distance off the cuff. I'm training nine, 10 times a week. You know, working long hours, but sleeping well, feeling good, 
I, I definitely stand by it. I'm not saying it's for everyone. I think that all of our bodies are unique, but I, I know from personal experience, you can thrive just eating plants. What do you think is the biggest barrier for people making that jump themselves? Especially when you, I'm sure you speak to a lot of non-vegans who must ask you a whole bunch of questions about it, but like, where do you see that struggle? I think there's been a lot of, um, a lot of misconception is built around what people perceive in, in the news or in the media and malnutrition, where's your protein from? Um, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, negative, a lot of negative stigma around it. I think there's a lack of information because we grow up eating a certain way. Certainly in the UK, our whole palate is built around protein from meat, vegetables, some kind of carbohydrate. You know, our, our parents weren't necessarily educated on, 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 on nutrition. They simply passed on the knowledge they had. We've then picked up that knowledge. And, you know, our food is, what we eat is very simple in hindsight. I was literally eating probably three or four different types of protein, three or four different types of carbs, three or four different types of vegetables. That was it. That was the, that was the scope of my diet. Um, whereas I think now there's, there can be kind of perspective is changing, but there's still a lack of education. So people most often ask me, but what do you even eat? Like, what can I eat? Like, where do I cover my nutritional bases from? Um, because you can definitely do it wrong. You know, there's a lot of unhealthy vegans out there for sure. There's a lot of unhealthy vegans. Um, when you eat meat and animal, animal, uh, animal protein, you know, you are getting the benefit of all of the plants that animals eat in. You know, you're getting a wide range of amino acids and vitamins and minerals. For, for, for me and me, I'm not disputing that. With, with, when it comes to eating plants, you do need to do your research and know what you're eating, but you can definitely get everything you need from eating plants. So I think misinformation is a big one. I think um, cultural bias around what we grow up eating, and that's very kind of set. You know, it's very difficult. You get to... 30 years old and you've eaten a certain way your whole life and someone comes to tell you what you've all these people that you've trusted and looked up to and have loved you have lied to you it's a very difficult thing to get your head around so yeah but it's, it's been amazing for me and I've made that change with my family now my mum and dad are both are both fully plant-based uh one of my brothers is plant-based the other one's vegetarian so and I've seen a lot of my friends follow the same path um did you have any struggles in the beginning like anything health-related I had to learn to cook very quickly. I was eating the same stuff a, a lot. Um, I lost I lost weight for sure. But I mean, I was also running a lot. I wasn't really lifting weight to that point. I was boxing and running. I was, I, I didn't, I was struggling to eat as many calories as I normally would. You know, with this typically less calorie dense foods. Um, and at that time, the availability to go out and eat, I mean, the, probably the biggest strain was social. You know, I had to, I was going out with my the same friends and you go to a restaurant and there might be like one thing you can eat or you could have to make a meal out of the sides. I'll have the side of spinach, the side of chips and the side of beans. Like there wasn't the, the, the availability in, in restaurants. So socially it was very challenging. It's not like it is now where every restaurant has to have a vegan menu or you, you know, you're not relevant. Um, so yeah, I would say it was more social and it was also having to learn quite quickly to be able to cook and what foods I could prepare and eat. Um, Whereas now I've been doing it for so long, it's just, it's second nature. You know, I know what to look for, but it just it just comes with time. Going back to the restaurant that you have built and um, communities that you've effectively created around that, how have you built a community around food? 
with the different brands that you have? Like, what are the things that you've really focused on? At the time of launching the first restaurant, we, so just for context, we opened the first restaurant, which accidentally turned out to be the UK's largest plant-based restaurant and still is in Norwich, which is two hours north of London, which is a city with a strong agricultural heritage. So, you know, imagine people there, they get their local meat, their local, you know, they're, they're very, they're pretty in tune with their food for the most part. Um, certainly not a hotbed of veganism, right? So looking at, okay, we're going to open a huge restaurant in this city where there isn't really any other vegan restaurants. There's a couple of, like, I think it's one veggie restaurant. And we're going to need to, we're going to need to have a hundred people a day eat here to make it work. There's not a hundred vegans here. So that's not our primary market. How do we build community around this restaurant without it being first and foremost about the food? Because people won't come for that. Right. So what we decided to do was using the power of social media was document the entire build process to take people on that journey. I'm, I'm from that city. So I have a network there, but obviously involving the people that were involved in the restaurant and the people that were working there, we essentially documented the entire process from the day of getting the keys to the day of opening. So that over that three month period, we would do things like have two different colors of paint on the wall and say, you could put on, on Instagram and say, what colors do you think we should paint it? What, what, what kind of table should we get? And we would almost bring people on the journey with us so that they felt that they were part of building that restaurant. So that when we opened, it didn't really matter what the food was providing it was delicious and it looked appealing. It was more about people that had been on that journey to come and see what it, what it looked like. They'd been on that journey with us. The other things that we were, we were looking at was how can we find an intersection between the topics that we can attach to, to what we do and the topics that an audience might be interested in. So sustainability, you know, whether you're vegan or not, whether you, you know, you'd have to have your head in the sand for the last five years to not, know that sustainability is high in the public agenda and, and, and an obvious concern. So we can talk about sustainability benefits. We can talk about their, you know, people there really big on local businesses. We can talk about the locality. We can talk about where the food comes from. I think at the same time, you know, there's this big kind of wave of Instagrammable offerings. So we just made our food. I'd, I'd been living in London. I've been traveling a lot. Um, so I basically took all of this, amazing Instagrammable food. The food had to look as appealing as it, as it, as it, as it tasted good. And we brought that and there was a number of things. And, you know, over time we were, I think our approach resonated with people because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't aggressive. It wasn't, you know, we're like, we're for everyone. If you're vegan, if you're not, doesn't matter. We let, we named the food in such a way that it was recognizable. So you'd come in, you'd find tacos, you'd find a chili, you'd find a burger, you'd find an acai bowl. You'd, you'd recognize everything. And so it made, it lowered the barrier to entry for people. And we were just made it, made sure it was super welcoming. Everyone that came in were welcome to be there because I had the opposite experience in vegan restaurants. When I was going to these like hardcore vegan restaurants, I'd go in, I might have a pair of leather trainers on, or, you know, I'm going to look like a vegan and they'd almost look at you like, what are you doing here? So we had to do the opposite. And, you know, it was really difficult first year. Second year was a little bit easier. Third year, we're in a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> but you know through that process we made sure that we were you know community and and the mission was at the forefront of what we were doing i think that's evident and i think that's a huge advantage we would have over other businesses is that we have a clearly defined goal 
Everyone comes to work, is working towards a mission. That's evident for the customers that come in, what we're doing. We're, we're spreading health, we're spreading sustainability. We're, and, you know, we do, do community activations. So we would do, you know, when the lockdown happened and uh, kids weren't getting their free school meals, we made, we did free school lunches for kids. You come and collect a free lunch. You know, we would, we had a running club running. We would, we, we would try and do things that would, that, would, that would engage the community that weren't just about veganism. And I think that's enabled us to have people come in and 80, 80 to 90% of our customer base is not vegan but come regularly and it's their one vegan meal a week or it's their vegan day or whatever it might be. And that's been our approach. And for, for that reason, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's worked. And strange question, but why Norwich? So uh, interestingly, I was trying to open a space in London and I'd actually had a heads of terms from the landlord sent across for a space in Shoreditch, which if I'd had that five years ago now, it would be, it would, it would, it would, it would be amazing. But, um, the uh, the landlord pulled out at the last minute, and I was going back to Norwich one day because my parents still live there. I'm I'm from there. I grew up there, and I saw this building in the city centre, which is now the restaurant, and it was like five stories, huge, and the rent was less. The advertised rent was less than this tiny unit I was going to take in Shoreditch. So I was like, huh, maybe I could move back, open one here first for that would be lower risk lower risk um let it would take less it would have a lower lower operating cost per week probably a lower capex to fit out and, and open it maybe i can move back and, and do one here first so it gave me the idea to move back and do one first in norwich and then come back to london and do it do it in london um which was the right decision because talk about not being risk averse i'm <laughs> my risk profile is is pretty you know pretty high like i put the last to to get the lead to get the deposit and the first three months lease i used all the money i had and i didn't have any investment so the day that i signed the lease agreement i put down deposit first three months and then i was out but i signed a 15 year lease so i then had to go and find the rest of the money to do it, people that would believe in 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 the in the vision of it, and uh, I was you know it was like burn the boats mentality at that point, which has been quite effective. Although I'm in the uh, in a position where I can be like that because I have no dependence, you know, and I think that's again come back to our original point about people that maybe work a job, etc. It is only going to get harder every day that goes past. You know, it's, it's easier to do this stuff when you have no responsibility, no dependence. Like I could go bankrupt and it wouldn't really affect anyone at this point because I don't have any kids, I'm not married. You know, I think, I think that's uh, take advantage of that position as one of the advantages of doing stuff young is that you, you know, it doesn't matter if you fail and lose everything, you can come back and, and, and do it again. Who did you go to for, for investment? And who, like, like, what was that conversation like? Because now you have someone in front of them who has put all their savings into this restaurant who doesn't really have experience in operating one by himself. I think that, I think that that in itself was a big thing. I believed in it enough that I would put all my savings in, move back, leave my other business to do it. I think that was a big statement for people. I think first and foremost, I always go, you go to friends and family, right? Close friends and family. Do you want to get involved in this? I, in hindsight, I didn't raise a lot of money. For me to open a restaurant now like that, 
I would need probably six times what I raised for that for the, for the first restaurant. I did it on a shoestring budget. Um, we took a lot of finance on, you know, we, we, we didn't have a lot of capital to that first restaurant. The second time I raised, I went, I had a bit of a track. I mean, I had a bit of a track record at that point anyway, because I'd, I'd started various, but I'd had seven or eight businesses by that point. So some successes, you know, it wasn't that I was a first time entrepreneur raising money. I'd, I'd, I'd done it before. Um, but the second time we raised to open the second restaurant, we did a, a more structured proper raise, you know, I had a proper pitch deck and I went out to the market and proper investors that I didn't know. And, and, and everything else. But yeah, the first one that the pitch really was, I'm all in on this. I'm going to work day and night to make it work. And this is the future. And this is why. And, you know, I saw eight years ago that when I first went vegan, it was a light bulb moment. It was, we have a growing global population that isn't just growing in size, but is growing in, um, is growing in, in, in wealth. We have this popular Western diet, which requires a huge amount of resource. And there isn't enough resource to feed everyone in this way. The food system has to change. People are going to recognize this at some point and the food system will change. If we can get in ahead of it changing, we can help spearhead this change, but we can also be there first. And that was the kind of the, the sell into people. Like people are going to have to start eating more, more plant-based foods. We can be there first and we can do it in a way that makes it accessible without demonizing people uh, for their other lifestyle choices. You live a very, I mean, from what I know about you, um, there's a lot of stressors in your life and uh, you deal with them extremely well. How do you manage stress, obviously outside of, or maybe inclusive of the habits that you've, that you've implemented? Um, and when does stress get the best of you? Stress got the best of me yesterday. Like it still gets the best of me like, like all, the, all the time, right? I feel like the things that used to, the things that were stressful to me two years ago, if they happen now, uh, it's like, it's like, it's nothing. So I, the way I look at it is as I'm going through it, it's like I use breath a lot. I, I think breath work is an incredible tool. Try and breathe try and be super present. I go through the mantras. I, you know, I, I use these little techniques, but ultimately it's the realization that when we overcome the stressor at that point, it then joins the rest of them that we can handle, you know, and, and there's, I think the last two years has been a, a good opportunity for, 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 for practicing being under pressure, but it's also been an excuse. Oh, it's COVID. Oh, it's COVID. Like you can <laughs> use that as an excuse, right? Um, but just really owning it, just taking full, like, you know, getting very comfortable that I am fully responsible. Even with the COVID thing, I'm like, look, I'm not blaming COVID. I'm responsible. It's my fault. And when you take like radical accountability, it makes everything a lot easier. Um, I think probably I'm also quite comfortable failing. And so that's been a big help. Like I'm not embarrassed to fail. Um, I'm not worried that other people will see me fail as I was at the start. There's, there's maybe a, a, a degree of that still more, more, more so because I don't want the ideas and, and what it stands for to fail, but I, I don't, I don't worry about failing. Um, the things that stress me are letting other people down. You know, as I said, the responsibility of having a lot of people, um, employed the responsibility of, um, 
you know, people's dreams and livelihoods and that kind of thing, that, 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 that's a stress for sure. Um, but in terms of dealing with it, you, you grow through what you go through. And that's been a mantra for me, like, like, cool. This is a, this is a challenge. You have to game. I think I said this to my business partner yesterday. It's like, if you don't gamify it and you make it like overwhelmingly, like this is life, it becomes very hard. I just gamify it. I'm like, cool. We've got this stuff to pay for. We've got this income, this. And I just treat it like a game. I lay everything out. I'm like, cool. And you, you treat it like a, like a game. It makes it much easier to deal with. And, and, and ultimately talking about it as well. I'm not someone that's particularly good at saying, I'm really stressed. I'm struggling today. I'm, I'm not good at that at all because anyone that I could tell that to would be directly affected by me not feeling good. And I'm also maybe looked to by those people as the person that never, never lets it get to them. So that's one thing I have, I still have difficulty with now is like, you know, I was really going through it yesterday. So I had to leave the house, go for a walk. Can't really tell anyone that I'm going through it. I just have to <laughs> deal with it myself. Right. So yeah, I'm still, I'm still learning on that one. I think whenever we, when you and I speak about the things we struggle with, it seems to be the exact same things. I, I have that exact same issue where I'm like, one, I don't, I never want to seem like someone who complains because I'm just not that person. And it could be perceived as me complaining. And the second thing is energy, right? Like if I don't want to bring that energy into someone's day, I don't want to burden someone with my problems. Um, while everyone is always going to tell you, no, no, share it with us. Like we're, we're also here to help you the same way you are here to help us. But I also still have that switch that still needs to go off where um, where we just need to be okay saying that we're not okay, especially to the people that we care about. Um, last question, and, um, and I think it's a good one to finish on. I wanted to talk about goal setting a bit because we, uh, we had a good discussion on this, on, on how you do this in particular. How do you set your goals? And obviously, you know, we can look at differentiating short-term versus long-term. And, um, and what does that really look like on a like on a, on a, on a detailed level, like what do you use? Um, when do you review them, etc.? I have long-term objectives for the businesses, but not necessarily for myself because who I am and what I want changes so frequently. But in the short term, the way I do this is I write out, if I was to have a perfect day, what things would need to be in that day to make it perfect. And I make a list physically, like I write a list. So I would have to do my morning routine. I want to have some kind of creative output. I want to do some kind of team sport. I'd want to do go out for some kind of social interaction with food. I'd want to make food. I'd want to go and experience art, whether it's music or artwork, whatever it might be. Like I make that checklist. And this is like my, I call it like a perfect day. And what I try and do is each day I, I look at that and I try and get as many of those things in, in each day as I can. Um, and that's been really impactful. Like it's the same analogy of like, if someone put a hundred million into your account right now, how would you live any differently? Like, what would you do? And I look at that list and all of those things would still be on it. So, so I know that I'm, I'm kind of living, living, uh, purposefully and, and, and doing the things that I want to do. And I do the same thing for the perfect week. I'm like every week, I want to make sure I go to jujitsu three times. I want to make sure that I go and see my family at least once. I want to make sure that, you know, and I have a similar list for the week. 
And then a similar list for, for a month, like every month I want to have a, I want to go on retreat for a weekend every month. I want to take three days where I unplug and I, I go walking and everything else. I want to go on a, a city break every month. I want to go away for a couple of days. I want to, I want to try and invest in one thing every month or whatever it might be. Right. And then I look at the year and I'm like, what could I get done this year? Like one big thing is that'd be really cool. Like I want to do a triathlon or I want to visit this specific country. Like, and that, that's as far as I go. But I think as a benchmark, it's been really helpful because we, we often think of goals of these like things we do in, in the future, but there's no immediate kind of, or we set daily goals and tasks, but they're, they're normally attributed to a, to, to something we want to achieve as opposed to, it's all about doing rather than about being, you know, and I've, I'm trying to do more being than doing right now. So, um, so yeah, that those, those daily, weekly, monthly, and then this year list. And I'll review that as and when I don't have a set kind of check-in day, but I'll try and look at it every day. I've got a little whiteboard on my, on my wall in my, in my room and I try and go back to it. Um, but it, but the businesses have goals, of course. They have a kind of, you know, a strategic uh, goal and plan as to how we get there. So, yeah, that's 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 how that's how I do it. Yeah, I like that, and I think it helps you live in a very present and intentional way. When you, um, you know, you don't have to overly plan your day. I used to, and and sometimes still do, just plan every single thirty minutes of my day, where, you know, from. 8 a.m. until 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. I know exactly what I'm going to be doing and when, which which leaves a little up to uh, spontaneity, which is also important. But if you structure it in a way where you say, okay, listen, you know what? I, I just want to do these five things today. Now, in what order they happen, it doesn't matter. I just, I want to experience it and I want to be fully there. I want to be fully present. Then it's, then it's a game changer. Absolutely. Um, cool. Is there anything else you know, that you, uh, that you want to mention anything else that you want to bring up that you think listeners might value or appreciate little tips or tricks or anything that you've, that you've been doing lately. The, 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 the thought that I've been having recently is that we, we have to really get good at reducing comparisons to other people. And it's very easy to get distracted with, with social media and other things that look at what someone else is doing. And like, it's, it's, it's us versus us. And that, that, that mentality is, is, has been something that I've been really working on recently to not get distracted by other people doing X, Y, and Z. Like I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm on my journey and I'm, I'm getting a little bit better each day. The big hack that I've come across recently and so I'll give you the kind of the outcome first and I'll tell you the how my screen time last week was down 80%, which is just crazy to me. And I'll tell you that I think screen time, I was in Dubai, obviously we was, I saw you the week before last. Um, so maybe it was for that, but I was on like six hours a day screen time on my phone. And obviously I work on my phone. There's I'm checking up on thing, whatever. I set time restrictions on certain apps on my phone last week. So social apps, um, predominantly, and I, but I didn't hit the time limit on a single day because I knew there was a time limit. I wouldn't waste time on those apps. 
And I got the screen report and it was 80% down. I was like, wow. And so like, when I'm walking now, I'm, if I'm not listening to a podcast where I'd normally be on my phone scrolling, it's just in my pocket. And I'm just, because I'm thinking I've got a time limit on that. So that as a productivity hack has been huge for me. And I definitely encourage everyone to set a time limit on the apps that they get caught up using too much. And you can override it if you need to, like, you know, if you're working, if you've launched a project and you need to be on Instagram for four or five hours that day, you can override it. It's not like you're locked out, but psychologically it's been a huge help. And I would definitely advocate for people doing that for sure. If you struggle with screen time layers. Yeah. And most people probably do because we all use it so mindlessly, right? Like our phone, I think the amount of times it's like 150 times a day we check our phone. Like it's, it's some ridiculous amount. And I think when we become more mindful of that, uh, it makes a huge difference. And also just in terms of your, your things like your sleep, right? Like if you stop using the screen from 8 p.m. onwards, for instance, and you know, there's no blue light, like all of a sudden you're going to see things improve that you wouldn't really think would to begin with. But um, that's, a really, that's a really great hack and I suggest everyone try it. Um, Louis, where can people find you online? I think it'll be uh, really cool for everyone to check out uh, the restaurants that you have to to get to know you even better uh, on your on your website or your personal profile. We, we, ju- we just talked about using Instagram less, but I'm going to give the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's at Louis underscore Blake on Instagram. And everything kind of comes off of there. That's kind of where I put most stuff up. Okay, fantastic. I'll uh, I'll put some links in in the show notes. But really, uh, my friend, thank you so much for being here today. I think uh, we all learned a tremendous amount and. Hopefully the people listening will implement some of the habits that we discussed. Obviously it's personal and subjective for everyone, but just as overall lessons, um, creating a viable morning routine, you know, thinking about at least implementing one vegan day or two vegan days a week as a start, um, working on the things that you love and and how to go about that. Um, Really, really helpful information, Louis. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.